The Mysteries of Watergate, Episode 17, Pennington. I want to talk to you tonight from my heart on a subject of deep concern to every American. Those who hate you don't win unless you hate them. I've been charged with involvement in a full, free, and absolute pardon unto Richard Nixon. What has come to be known as the Watergate Affair. I'm John O'Connor, author of Postgate, How the Washington Post Betrayed to Deep Throat, Covered Up Watergate, and Began Today's Partisan Advocacy Journalism. We've discussed in prior episodes some intriguing characters whose role has never been properly understood and about whom history has not corrected the record. Since the Watergate scandal ended in principal part by the close of 1974, there has been able research performed, especially as to the role of Hunt and McCord as possible undercover CIA agents, and Dean and Magruder, the two Nixon aides most likely to have authorized the burglary and known of it in advance. Len Kolodny's silent coup is a tour de force, certainly regarding things Dean, and is a worthwhile reference for anyone wishing to know more about this intriguing Watergate character. But for our present purposes, it suffices to say that if there was any foreknowledge in the Nixon White House of the Watergate burglary, it would have resided in the person of undercover CIA agent Howard Hunt and minor White House aide John Dean, falsely elevated in status by the overblown title of White House Counsel. And of course, on the CRP side, Jeb Magruder and Gordon Liddy would, of course, have known of these burglaries. In contrast to the revisionist historical treatment of Hunt, McCord, and Dean, Lou Russell and Michael Stevens have received only a smattering of treatment, even by the revisionists, and at that, almost exclusively contained in small bits and pieces in secret agenda by Jim Hogan. But almost no sustained attention has been given to one Lee Pennington, In fact, little attention at all, except, oddly enough, in the Little Red, quickly remaindered 1979 book by Mark Felt, The FBI Pyramid. What is the significance of Lee Pennington? Well, he fills in any gaps in proof as to the point of metaphysical certainty that the direct and moving involvement of the CIA in the Watergate break-in was proven positively. How so? Michael Stevens certainly presented compelling proof of CIA guilt, especially with his confirmation through the agency sources of McCord's active status. The bugs on order with Stevens, geared to reach a CIA satellite, pushed that proof beyond a reasonable doubt that McCord was ordering these bugs for CIA's purposes, not those of the White House. The White House did not have a satellite. But that said, the credulous could be convinced that McCord was simply using his CIA connections to further some sort of a White House scheme. But the satellite linking bugs? Who knows? Pro-post hardliner might argue maybe McCord was, again, simply helping the plumber's unit. Such thinking is very hard to swallow, but at least one supposes it is in the realm of the possible. What about Russell? Lou Russell was clearly not on Liddy's payroll or known to him, but it has never been clear that Russell was on the CIA payroll either, as opposed to being a shady, covert, off-the-books contractor for McCord. Truly, deep, deep cover. Russell's presence proves CIA involvement beyond a reasonable doubt, and, just as in the case of Stevens, enough to get a criminal conviction, but again, perhaps not beyond all doubt for the conspiracy-minded. Yes, Martinez was, at the time of the burglary, an active CIA agent. He kept a diary. 
But as I described in earlier episodes, the story has been floated that the Cuban Watergate burglars, including Martinez, were duped by Howard Hunt into thinking that this was an anti-Castro action, and therefore Martinez could have been, unwittingly, working for the White House through Hunt. Once more, this is not a convincing defense for the CIA, but a tissue-thin defense nonetheless, however weak. But if Lee Pennington was actively involved, working as a CIA, quote, handler, unquote, or a case agent for McCord, then any smidgen of even these irrational doubts would be erased. McCord made bail a week or two after arrest. When he made bail, he was picked up at the jail, the FBI soon learned, by a man known only as Pennington. Felt and his FBI agents immediately theorized that Pennington may be McCord's CIA case agent. The FBI had no hint as to Pennington's employer, but inferred a possible CIA connection, given McCord's status as a recent retiree, often felt new as an undercover ruse. And remember, the FBI already knew by this point that Mullen was giving Hunt cover and was a cover company itself. Accordingly, after some attempts to learn Pennington's status with the agency through informal means, on August 18, 1972, the FBI issued a formal request to the agency for the identity of a CIA agent named Pennington. The CIA then provided the FBI in response only the name of Agent Cecil Pennington. It took months for the CIA to locate Cecil Pennington through his foreign postings. When the FBI agents finally found him, Cecil affirmed in convincing fashion and to the FBI's satisfaction that he could not have been the Pennington sought by the Bureau. Felt had left the Bureau by the time that his agents ultimately located Cecil Pennington, so he had been stymied on this front when he reached retirement. But as we detailed in earlier episodes, the CIA was threatening lives while Felt was still employed in May 1973. So the question of CIA involvement was very much alive, even at that advanced date, especially since the threats involved Stevens directly, it would seem, and Russell by inference. When Felt wrote The FBI Pyramid in 1979, he made a point of noting that the CIA had sent the FBI on a wild goose chase for Cecil while hiding one Lee Pennington from his men. Lee Pennington, Felt wrote pointedly, was clearly a CIA agent and had picked up McCord from jail. Many hearing this would not be shocked that the CIA would lie to the FBI, but lying to the FBI is a crime the same crime that destroyed Nixon, obstruction of justice. And as well, it's a false statement within the jurisdiction of an agency, so there's an additional crime there as well as obstruction. So the question arises why CIA officials would risk criminal liability to protect Lee Pennington's identity. Certainly the inference is that a truthful response would have suggested even worse criminality. One does not commit a crime of concealment unless the fact concealed in this case, it's Lee Pennington's status, unless the fact concealed has more profoundly negative consequences. What was it about Lee Pennington that drove the CIA to lie so blatantly and riskily? First, let's ask, how did Lee Pennington finally surface? Two honest CIA security officers responding to a renewed request to gather all Watergate evidence, a request made by new CIA director William Colby, as a matter of conscience, stepped forward in early 1974 to tell Colby of Pennington's identity, not previously disclosed. Yes, the agency had not been straight with the FBI. 
What the agents added, though, was more chilling. It happened that while McCord was still in jail, Lee Pennington visited the McCord home to help Mrs. McCord burn in her fireplace all evidence of McCord's ongoing agency connection. Yes, not past CIA employment, which was known to all, but his continuing connection. In or around March or April of 1974, this information was relayed both to the FBI and to the Senate Watergate Committee from the CIA. It was then discovered that in addition to the pickup of McCord and Pennington's home visit, McCord had relayed through Pennington to the CIA a research report on Jack Anderson in the spring of 1973 as Operation Mud Hen was winding down. In the weeks leading up to the criminal trial, December 72 and January 73, McCord had sent five status letters to the agency through Pennington, mainly dealing with Hunt's possible CIA defense and the nature of the prosecutor's case. It certainly appeared that Pennington, as a CIA contractor, was McCord's case agent before, during, and after Watergate. So risking criminal liability was rational because, as a frightened deep throat told Woodward in the garage in May of 1973, the CIA was deeply concerned about what other CIA activities might be discovered as the result of Watergate, concern so strong that the agency was threatening murder. When the CIA sent to the Senate its belatedly produced materials, as it did with the description of Pennington's visit to the McCord household, written at the direction of Colby in a very blunt, straightforward manner, This was described bluntly later by Texas Republican Senator Howard Baker. We're going to quote from a report that Howard Baker issued after investigating the CIA documents, and we note the emphasis is in the original. Now, this is a report, Senate Minority Report, sometimes referred to as the Baker Report. I quote, The results of our investigation clearly show that the CIA had in its possession, as of early June of 1972, information that one of their paid operatives, Lee R. Pennington Jr., had entered the James McCord residence shortly after the Watergate break-in and destroyed documents which might show a link between McCord and the CIA, unquote. This quote by Baker is almost a verbatim quote of what the CIA forwarded to the Senate. Certainly, all knew of McCord's past employment with the CIA, so the only meaning of this admission was that the CIA was deliberately covering up McCord's present employment with the agency. And of course, if Pennington picked up McCord at the jail and continued as his handler, McCord was necessarily acting as a CIA agent in Watergate. So, while Stevens, Russell, and Martinez form a triple play to prove the case against the CIA, Pennington's involvement is a guilty plea. That is precisely why the agency risks so much to hide it for a year and a half. Pennington's presence is a catching in the act of undercover work. I have presented here the most important material facts about Pennington, which, logically and coolly considered, prove positively that the CIA, through McCord, was involved in Watergate. Before the arrest, McCord had communicated to the agency, including his reports on Jack Anderson, through Pennington. After his arrest, Pennington burned documents showing McCord's continuing connection to the CIA and picked him up from jail. Pennington's role was so sensitive that the agency felt compelled to obstruct justice by pointing the FBI 
to CIA agent Cecil Pennington while hiding the CIA connection of Lee Pennington. It is the agency's almost successful attempts to conceal Pennington's identity that shows the agency's consciousness of guilt. But probably of equal appeal to a jury of public opinion were the several internal efforts of the CIA, both before and after the arrest, to keep Pennington hidden even within its own walls. Pennington was a contractor of the highly secretive security research staff within the Office of Security, or OS. Pennington's identity was so secretive that even the CIA director did not know of Pennington. He was paid by sterile check and was known outside of McCord and perhaps other illegal domestic undercover agents only by SRS Chief Paul Gaynor and two case officers to whom he was assigned over 15 years with the CIA. Was Pennington the cutout to illegal undercover agents such as McCord? If any agency was to inquire, there would be no record of Pennington on the payroll. When the FBI requested information on a Pennington on August 18, 1972, Security Officer Number 1 was told by the head of personnel security that Lee Pennington was too sensitive to be given up. Parenthetically, by this time, several within the agency had heard through General Gaynor of the burning of documents at McCord's home, which, to Gaynor's amusement, had caused smoke damage to McCord's living room. So, following the directives of the head of personnel security, security officer number one wrote a memo about this decision not to give up Lee Pennington, and his second-hand knowledge that Pennington had burned documents at McCord's home showing McCord's connection to the agency. A year later, in August 1973, during the Irvin Committee hearings, with former Director Richard Helms long ago shipped off to Iran, New CIA Director William Colby asked that a package of Watergate materials be prepared for him. Security Officer Number 1 was told not to include his memo about Pennington in these materials. Disturbed by this, he nonetheless complied. After all, there had not yet been any legal mandate that he fully comply. However, in January 1974, the CIA's Inspector General asked to review the full Watergate file of the OS or Office of Security, within which sensitive branch, you will recall, the SRS was the most sensitive of all. After Security Officer Number 1 was asked again to remove Pennington materials from the file, he and another security officer both agreed to resign if forced to continue concealment, most prominently with Senator Howard Baker as head of the minority on that committee. The CIA's Office of Legislative Counsel asked all concerned to sign a memo saying that all Watergate documents had been produced. It was then that the two security officers brought forth the earlier August 1972 memo about the destruction of materials at McCord's home, assisted by Pennington, all designed to cover up McCord's continuing connection to the agency. So belatedly, the Pennington materials went to the Senate long after public hearings had been concluded. When we consider the lengths to which senior officials of the CIA went to conceal information about Pennington, we should understand that the information in this podcast, to which you are now listening, is that which many had previously risked jail and pensions to avoid revealing to the public.
So when we tell you on this podcast that this is significant information, you should be convinced by the CIA attempts to suppress evidence under pain of jail, termination, and loss of pension. Other than Jim Hogan, Mark Felt, and my recent book, Postgate, none of the hundreds of Watergate books and thousands of articles and documentaries have treated this highly probative vein of solid fact. It is my opinion that evidence of Pennington's connection with McCord, combined with the agency attempts to suppress it, is sufficient by itself to convict the CIA of Watergate participation. And it is also proof beyond a reasonable doubt that if the Washington Post knew of this information and did not report it, that paper is guilty of a Watergate cover-up far more venal and reprehensible than any other act of obstruction. In this episode, we have conclusively solved one mystery of Watergate. As we will discuss further in coming episodes, the public never learned of Lee Pennington or his significance, and thereby deprived the public of one more key to solving the mysteries of Watergate. The great bulk of the evidence we've presented in these episodes never made it into the larger public realm by a conclusion of the Watergate scandal, for reasons which we will later discuss. There was one Washington figure, though, who, because he steadfastly had remained silent throughout the key years of the affair, could explain much once he chose to open up. That figure was G. Gordon Liddy, a burglary supervisor and CRP money man who chose to accept a sentence for contempt of court rather than be forced to talk about anyone else, at least so long as the statute of limitations was running. In our next episode, we will talk of this intriguing character and further explore the mysteries of Watergate. Thank you for listening. I have just completed a book on the same subject, entitled The Mysteries of Watergate, What Really Happened. While it covers the material in our podcast, I have added two chapters of contextual materials and removed the repetition needed for a podcast. For those enjoying this series, it will serve as a valuable historical reference. For your non-listening friends, it will prove enlightening and entertaining. Thank you for your support.